0: I'll tell you a, a funny little Bono story. So when I first went to Red, we were housed at BBDO because we didn't really didn't have an office in New York and John Wren was generous enough to say, look, just park yourself at BBDO. And so Bono came for a, a, the first time for a meeting um, there and we had to go through security. And we, I, so I went down to meet him and the security guard asked him for an ID. And he didn't have his wallet. He just had jumped out of a car and come in all by himself. And so he didn't have a wallet or an ID. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't have anything with me. And she said, Well, what's your name? She had no idea who he was. So what's your name? And he said, Well, it's Bono. And she said, Bono, what? <laughs> and he sort of jokingly said, Oh, we you know we were too poor to have a last name at my parents, you know, it's just Bono. So she put her hands on her hips and said, Listen here, Mr. Bono, the next time you come to BBDO, you better have an ID.
1: Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his
0: brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, but they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do
2: we film on a volcano
1: that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope.
2: I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It Either, either you... Run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this instance of wanting to run towards it.
3: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Susan Smith-Ellis. And I I love the designation because it's such an unusual choice of words in combination. But Fast Company named you one of the 10 most generous marketing geniuses. (laughs) That
0: that's, that's a, hyperbole.
3: Yeah, that's that's quite that's that's a lot. Um did you you said your friends were not surprised that you ended up at Red no. but you didn't see that for yourself. No, I didn't
0: and in fact I'll tell you something. So when um when I was approached at Red by Red I was really approached through Corn Ferry which was a which was actually an Omnicom connection. We had bought the a company that a man named Rick Ruthier um I'm oh, no, sorry, not Rick Ruthier. Um, Rick Remick was a was a founder of. And through that I met his wife, Tierney Remick, who was a big shot um, partner at Corn Ferry and just wonderful, amazingly talented well woman. And we became friendly. So she recommended me for the red job to a Corn Ferry colleague. And when they called, I thought they were actually calling me to ask me for a reference for something like who do you know who do you? and so i told, i uh, I got a voicemail and I called them back and left three names on a voicemail and then they called back and said no we want, we want to talk to you and i I thought, well why I, you know I don't really understand and so I went home and i you know I talked to my family about it, and honestly the, my attraction to red in the beginning was more about the ability to take the marketing and branding and attracting those kinds of talents to a team um, and putting it to good use than it was about the mission. I really came to care deeply about the red mission through understanding what it was happening with the, with the AIDS crisis and then being able to go to Africa and see firsthand what was going on there and then see the impact that the Global Fund was having. So it, for me, the first thing was the excitement of taking um, branding and and doing something interesting with it, this sort of embedded cause. Not, I really want to be an AIDS activist. So it was, it, I came. It was backwards for me.
1: There are many stories to tell you about AIDS. Here's one we'd like to share. AIDS is a preventable, treatable disease that's killed 39 million people. A little more than a decade ago. If you lived in New York, London, or Paris and got diagnosed with HIV, you could get life-saving medication. But if you lived in Ghana, Kenya, or Zambia and got diagnosed with HIV, you went home to die. So the world woke up and made it possible and affordable to get medication to the millions of people with a death sentence over their heads. Red is part of this story. AIDS is a complicated issue and Red set out to make it easy. Artists and designers organized auctions. Companies made Red products. DJs and dancers hit the decks. Chefs cooked up a storm. People tweeted and shared. And politicians paid attention. In everyday actions, people's choices started to affect real change. People helped Red give life. Two pills that can cost as little as 40 cents will keep someone living with HIV alive and healthy. That's all it takes. And when an HIV positive pregnant mom takes these pills, the risk that she'll pass on this deadly virus to her baby is reduced to less than 5%. Red has been helping with this fight since 2006, raising over a quarter of a billion dollars and impacting the lives of 55 million people. This simple idea has helped turn funerals into birthdays, caskets, into cribs the world now has an historic and beautiful opportunity to get enough moms on the medication so they can give life without passing on a life-threatening illness we can get this done in the next few years an AIDS-free generation is within our grasp Red's power lies in Red's partners will you join us
3: you ended up in advertising. You rose up the ladder relatively quickly. Uh, and then you get this life changing phone call from Corn Ferry. We're now in the midst of another crisis, another pandemic. What have we not learned from our response to the AIDS crisis that you look at and say, you know, God damn it, we did it again.
0: Well, the thing you know, remember it took a long time for the AIDS crisis to really come to the fore I mean, that was one of the um, One of the the most important missions about red was to build awareness. I Maybe mean, we were raising money Yes, and that was important, but it was also to build awareness because the the connection between the US and Africa You know, we're not we weren't colonists there, right? I mean Europe has a much deeper connection people travel there more easily so you you're trying to make people you know in winnetka illinois understand that there was a crisis where millions and millions of people I mean africa was on fire So I do think that We had it one, it took a long time remember that first, you know AIDS sort of came to the fore in the reagan administration, right and People that were gay and dying from aids. There was, was, was sort of a pariah thing going on people wouldn't and different people leadership people started to break through and I think President Bush creating PEPFAR, but look at the difference in how many years that took from Reagan to Bush, too, um, to really get the United States government involved. And PEPFAR, plus the, the money that the US funded the Global Fund, US is still the largest funder of the Global Fund. So it took a long time. Um, and, you know, in some ways, because it took a long time, by the time a lot of resources were put against it, people had maybe forgotten that it was so long ago that we were dealing with aids whereas coronavirus literally came out of nowhere like we don't we don't we don't have any any time to adapt to it or to say oh look it's happening in Botswana and then over time little by little by little it spreads around i mean it it just the world burst into flames from this and um I'll tell you a funny sidebar or an odd sidebar. So my husband has this thing called News Items, which I've told you about, and it's a daily newsletter. And in in January, he's, he had started seeing articles in the South China Morning Post, and he follows things all over the world. And he started writing about this virus in Wuhan, and he would talk about it at dinner parties and everything. Oh, I wanted to murder him, honestly. I thought, if you don't stop talking about the cor- the coronavirus, so that, I guess it was the Wuhan virus then. And he was saying, "No, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be something really big and really bad." And um, and then it was. And I and I thought, "Wow, this is something. This is some time where I wish he wasn't right." But um, but I think that we didn't have. You know, if you go back and look, the the WHO. I mean, China knew that this was bad. The WHO maybe knew that this was you know coming on, but nobody sounded the alarm. So there was no time to even think about what could you do to just shut down the travel and shut down people's ability to spread it. We didn't, we just made a mess of it. And, and I'm not sure in the United States, we're still fixing it in that every state, every town, everybody seems to have their own way of dealing with this. And, you know, I don't know how that works. I don't know how it works. If you can, you know, some people can go to the theater, but some people can't, and some people can travel and some people don't. And it's, I think it's going to make us uh, take a much longer time to resolve it unless Moderna or someone comes up with a vaccine.
3: And, and I guess what's different, the enemy, and I was talking to Jeff Goodby the other day and he said, you know, it's the unseen enemy, right? You don't know. Um, And I, I guess there was a seminal moment when Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson got it early on that sort of said to us, "Oh, no one is immune here."
0: No one. I mean, I, you know, I think that I think no one knows. Honestly, I don't think they really know how we get it, right? Because there are people that will say, "I followed every protocol. I wash my hands. I disinfect. I blah blah blah," and I have it. And so, where did that come from? And I think there's so much unknown about it. I mean, the thing about AIDS is that, you know, we 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 did a lot to mitigate it just here in the U.S. just by teaching people to wear a condom. I mean, it's a lot simpler. Wish, wish that coronavirus was that simple.
3: And you know, we also had then a lot of very high-profile people. The uh, rise of celebrity and the role. I remember when Magic Johnson, when he came out and spoke.
0: First of all, let me say good good after late afternoon. Because of uh, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. Um, I just want to make clear, first of all, that I do not have the AIDS disease, because I know a lot of you want to know that, but uh, HIV virus. Um,
3: And we were at David Stern's memorial fairly recently, and Magic spoke. And, you know, David Stern stood right by him.
0: I and
3: did. and I think that was sort of a seminal moment in acceptance. Yes. That he played on the dream team after he had technically retired and came back. You really had a, a, a bird's eye view of the power of personality to focus attention on a cause. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that first interview you had once you got past the corn Ferry people and Bobby Shriver, and you worked with quite an incredible cast to build red from something that was relatively small into something that was hardly small.
0: Well, so I think there, honestly, I think there is a big difference between um, celebrities who wear cause as a sort of, you know, popular outfit and celebrities that do the work to understand it. And the thing about Bono, that really—I mean—that was when I interviewed with him. Um, we went to a restaurant, and—and and, you know, I—I I like you too. I think they're a fabulous band. But I wouldn't—I wasn't like a giddy girl fan of Bono. You know, I—I I, I wanted to meet him as a as my boss. The
3: man behind so much of this good work is a Grammy award-winning, multi-platinum selling music legend whose hobby is helping others. He is one of the top four members of the band U2. Please welcome <laughs> the
0: he, He's so knowledgeable about this issue. And remember, he had started the one campaign around trying to raise awareness about poverty and really to influence the players in Washington.
3: for being here with us. This is our third year
1: doing the Red Shopathon. What is different, besides Brian Cranston appearing nude, what is different about this year? I think, you know, we made some great progress fighting this
0: disease. 21 million people now alive who would be dead with these little drugs. And the catalyst for Red came when they were meeting with various uh, senators and congresspeople and talking trying to talk about AIDS in Africa. What can we what can the u.s. Do and what can we do? We need more, you know funding and more awareness and They would say to him, you know, when we go back to our constituents We're not hearing about AIDS in Africa at the you know, at the pig roast in Tennessee or whatever It's just not on anybody's mind and that was the aha moment For bono to say, okay, what can we do? to sort of bring heat to this, as you would call it, to bring heat to this cause and to make everybody understand that this is really something horrible and we can do something. And so, and and how do you make it an easy, you know, people can quit their jobs and go to Africa and dispense antiretroviral medicine, but they could buy a product, they could buy RED and save lives. One year
1: since its launch, and Irish rock star Bono is celebrating the success of RED. Red has been a big success, I'm delighted to tell you. I think it's $47 million goes into the Global Fund after a first year. By buying products like Gap t-shirts, red iPods, red cell phones, consumers have contributed $47 million to the fight against the biggest killers in Africa, HIV, AIDS, malaria, and TB. The idea is to make Red the star, not me. I mean, some people push back against it, you know, and uh, it's it's irritating. Some people don't like the idea that companies can make profit, but uh, we want them to make profit on this because it makes it sustainable.
0: So he really knew his stuff. And when you think about some of the celebrities that surrounded us back then, um, you know, uh, Christy Turlington was getting a master's degree in public health, and she went on to found uh, Every Mother Counts. I mean, she's serious. She's not... Just doing this because it's it looks cool at the moment. I went to Africa and, we, and traveled with Scarlett Johansson because we wanted the politicians and the activists and the artists who wanted to help us go and see firsthand what we were doing. Where does the money go? Here's what the clinic looks like, here's the success, or here's the you know where it's difficult so that when they were asked to speak about it, they weren't just saying, oh, it's really great and I love, you know. So I, I have to say that I think there are still moments where, you know, people jump on a call, like every time there's some terrible news item, you know, somebody put everybody puts it on Instagram or whatever. I, I think the people that make a big difference in the celebrity world are the ones that really understand the issue and stay with it. They're not just doing it on trend.
3: Talk about your first trip to Africa, where did you go and what do you remember from that trip
0: oh everything um, mal dafrique I think that's the my bad French pronunciation of the of that expression that says you' are Africa's sickness which is a good thing it means that you just are so moved by it that you i mean i I loved it so I went to uh I went to Rwanda um, I went to Rwanda to Ghana uh, and to Namibia um, and the, the you know the other the other thing is everybody uh, or not everybody many people talk about Africa as if it's a you know as if it's Texas as if it's some giant state or whatever and as you know well you know it, the countries could not be more different from one another the people could not be more different from one another you No, know, everybody doesn't look the same or have the same uh, every it's there it's it's a big world um, what impressed me was. Uh, was first of all, Rwanda was, you know, obviously coming out of the genocide. I mean, what a, what a horrible story that was. And I remember when I was on, when I, after I'd left my job at Hill Holiday, I had two young children was working, was staying home really. And I remember listening to NPR while I was making them dinner and they were talking about the Tutsis and the Hutus. And I, I mean, I don't know, I didn't think I really understood what that was all about. But going to Rwanda, seeing how they rebuilt after the genocide, Seeing the real effort that they were making to to actually use the the AIDS crisis, if you will, to build out a proper healthcare structure, so that there were clinics and places where people could go and get healthcare and get help and have prevent mother-to-child transmission by getting the um, the right medication at the time of birth. And so, I was very impressed with the Kigalis. I, I had the opportunity to meet uh, them, and you know, and and yet here on the border of Rwanda there are people, you know, just over the border still waiting to come back and create that same disruption that had gone on So there's this weird tension Um, the Ghana was amazing because they had just had their uh, Democratic uh, election and it would have been very close really close like a couple of votes apart and there was this concern that you know, maybe there wouldn't be a peaceful transition from the old president to the new, but there was. And I remember thinking, wow, like, that's so great. Here's democracy really in action. Nobody's arguing about it. So there, and the other thing was how, how wonderfully warm and I mean, obviously everybody, I'm sure there are some cranky people in Africa as there are everywhere. So I don't want to like disnify it, but there were amazing, everybody was so warm and you know, Ethiopia, you know, everyone invited you into their home and made the strongest coffee ever. I was probably on the worst coffee jag there in that trip, coffee and popcorn. Um, and even people who lived in very modest home. I mean, we're talking modest beyond our imagination were really house proud to have us come and, you know, sit on their little stool in their dirt floor and talk about what was going on with their daughter who had had the benefit of um, the ARVs or so people were warm and they were fun. Uh, I remember getting um, much mocked by a, a bunch of school children who were trying to teach me how to dance. Talk about, you know, talk about not being very rhythmic um, and they laughed and laughed and laughed or watching kids play um, soccer with garbage bags that they had rolled all up and then taken tape and made it look like a soccer ball and, you know, playing for hours and having fun. And you come back to our world where there's so much abundance, right? We have, I mean, even people who aren't doing well in the States are doing well by a lot of standard, And, uh, and there's a lot of whining, we do a lot of whining here that we probably shouldn't do that. There's a lot of gratitude and a lot of joy and an appreciation that life is short there. And so um, I loved it. I loved that. I loved what it looked like. I loved how it smelled. I mean, just everything about it. I just thought it was the best.
3: Yeah. I I felt I've been now, I think four times, as you know, I think we're launching advertising week in Africa and the first one was supposed to have taken place a few weeks ago um, and will now be pushed into next year. But in an almost inexplicable way, and I grew up in, you know, Queens, uh, New York, but in an almost inexplicable way, I felt like I was home.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly right. I mean, I remember coming back and saying to my family, you know, if I, if you all disappear tomorrow, I might just move to Africa. And uh, I don't know, there was, it's just, um, it's it is hard to describe to people who haven't been there. Yeah. You know, it really is uh, a special place. So you
3: embarked on a, an incredible program to engage brands in Red's mission, and took their uh, financial situation from very modest to a real position of strength. And you raised a tremendous amount of money. Talk about how your background working in the ad business helped equip you for that, and do you remember any of those initial conversations that you had with big brands to get them to engage with you?
0: Well, so you know it was it's funny that I mean I think the thing that you learn when you're in ad land um is that brands need to be new, ever new it's they're under a lot of pressure to constantly how do you stay fresh? how do you stay? Relevant your audiences are changing your demographics are changing your audience grows beyond you or whatever And so knowing that in some ways made it easy or to talk about the opportunity for red because it was a chance to a to reach a, um, a very broad audience of people who really were Engaged with red, right? We had a we had a, a pretty broad audience of people We did a bunch of market research in the beginning just to find out how do people think about AIDS in Africa, and and different causes, and how do you engage them? So I think presenting it as a chance to use your brand, <coughs> excuse me, your brand and your brand voice to do something good to reach an audience, and and it was it was um, I mean maybe sexy isn't the right word, but you know what I mean we that that was not it was not sad. What we were doing was was full of energy and life and, and excitement. And I think brands were attracted to that plus the added value of doing good. And our research had said that people really look to brands in some ways more than government to make change because, you know, we've had complicated government relationships, um, but the but also that they were more likely to favor a brand if it was if it was willing to do something good in the world it didn't really matter what that was but if you were willing to sort of use your, your leverage to do something good that resonated with customers so in in some ways it wasn't hard at all the hardest thing for us was we were a really small team i'm sure they still are today and So we could only do what we could do, and and, uh, the demand sometimes to turn things red was greater than our capacity to absorb it. So we had to really figure out a calendar. And also, we wanted to try to keep it ourselves fresh, right? We didn't want to become, oh, it's the red people again. You know, sometimes a cause can become wearing. And so in order to keep ourselves fresh, we were constantly looking at ways to not just partner with brands, but then you know, the 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 auction at Sotheby's, or could you do Red Nights with um, emerging artists? Or like, how did you keep it? So that just when people thought it was about Gap T-shirts, no, it's not, it's, it's, it's something else we're doing over here. So I think that, that helped keep Red hot. Hi, I'm Rob Garza from Thievery Corporation, and I'm a Red artist.
3: Basically, we were approached about working with RED. For us, it was just very, uh, you know, a simple answer. You know, yes. It's helping to eradicate AIDS in Africa, where you have 4,100 people a day dying. To do things that are socially conscious right now and to bring music and art and culture together in a way that can positively affect the rest of the world is one of the best things you can do and one of the best ways to do it. music kind of transcends boundaries and cultures and even time it can have an
1: emotional impact Thank you for participating in the Red Concert Series part of the proceeds
0: And fresh, but it was also exhausting <laughs> for the little team that worked there. But, um, but you know, th- today, today, Red has raised $650 million. So well beyond what our little team did. But I think what we did was we took it we took it from an idea and we made it into a hot little reality that kind of launched it. Um, and then from there, the other people have taken it on to really great fundraising.
3: And what was the first company or brand that you engage with? That really you know jumped in the deep end of the pool,
0: well, so there were a couple before I got there, obviously because they had you know they had launched red right with Apple, Gap, and I think Armani were the were the three that were already there, um and Gap obviously the windows with all those great iconic t shirts um okay. really build a lot of awareness um I would say that Nike was a fantastic partner uh and really i mean talk about a great brand all around. You know, we we reached out to them, they came to the our office. We talked about what red was and what we were trying to do and and what the mission was. And they said, "Okay." And then they went away back to back to uh, uh Beaverton. And within a very short number of weeks they came back or maybe we went out there and they presented us with a ton of ideas you know from equestrian riding boots to to laces to i mean they just their their imagination their creativity and their speed to market was extraordinary
2: tied together was a 120 hour five city relay around the world to help fight hiv and aids in africa it shows the world how individuals and creativity can make a change and how a community of artists, skateboarders, and athletes can lace up and take to the streets to help fight a crisis in their own way. It's a way of doing something different that makes a difference.
0: And then, we obviously, because of the World Cup, we tied that all together. And they brought all the fantastic uh, football, i.e. soccer um, artists to the table to help promote Red. So it was just an amazing thing from... From the idea to the execution to then getting the message out through their own network and then their support and so I, they were really sort of the the I think the sine qua non as you would expect because you know Nike Apple I mean these are still the great brands and and they understand their they know their brand and they know how to execute um, Starbucks was terrific uh, they were they were part of Howard coming back into Starbucks to become the CEO again. And he used our relationship with red to sort of reimagine Starbucks to all these young baristas. And we did an event in new Orleans at the big stadium there. Um, And, you know, no one, their, their team didn't know anything about what was happening. So it was a secret. And Howard came out and talked about, you know, the importance of, Starbucks being active and giving back and how we had this great army and blah, blah, blah. And then he brought Bono out on stage. I mean, you watch, you know, a place go completely apeshit, uh, pardon me for saying that. Um, I mean, that they were wild. And then they did an incredible job turning, you know, their their coffees red and whatever. And, and And think of all the stores and all the places where, you know, around the world where Starbucks had a footprint. So they were also great. But um, you know, I would say Sotheby's was a great partner. I mean, honestly, we were lucky that, uh, Belvedere Vodka was fantastic. You know, we were, we were lucky that people really, if they said yes, they jumped right in. There were some, I don't want to mention names, but there were some who would approach us and that, and their, their way of, they wanted Red's benefit to them, but the benefit that we would have gotten to the global fund was so minuscule that we would say no, um, You know, we don't want change. We don't want you to benefit from not doing much. And so, um, and, and Red was, I mean, Apple was a great partner. I mean, they're just their products alone. They're so beautiful and turning them red. They just, you know, they were great. They were great people to work with.
3: You spent a lot of time with Bono. Yeah. I don't know anybody who spent a lot of time with Bono. Tell us about him.
0: I'll tell you a, a funny little Bono story. So when I first went to Red, we were housed at BBDO because we didn't really didn't have an office in New York and John Wren was generous enough to say, look, just park yourself at BBDO. And so Bono came for a, a, the first time for a meeting um, there and we had to go through security. And we, I, so I went down to meet him and the security guard asked him for an ID. And he didn't have his wallet. He just had jumped out of a car and come in all by himself. And so he didn't have a wallet or an ID. And he said, "I'm sorry, I don't have anything with me." And she said, "Well, what's your name?" She had no idea who he was. So, "What's your name?" And he said, "Well, it's Bono." And she said, "Bono what?" <laughs> and he sort of jokingly said, "Oh, we you know, we were too poor to have a last name. But my parents, you know, it's just Bono." So she put her hands on her hips and said, "Listen here, Mr. Bono. The next time you come to BBDO, you better have an ID." And she led him upstairs, again, and he loved it. Like he was not, he was really chuffed by the fact that she didn't know him, right? He wasn't like, do you know who I am or whatever. Um, He had such good ideas, really smart, creative ideas when we would sit around at the board meetings and talk about what we could do next. I mean, he was the catalyst with Damien Hurst for the auction. All right. Tell me how this idea came about.
2: Um, Bono, uh, I went on holiday with Bono in the south of France to stay with him. And at the end of the holiday, about five o'clock in the morning, drunk, he uh, yes. said, hey, do you want to do an auction for Red? And I said, yeah, definitely. I'll do it all. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, uh, well, you did it all. You wrote, yeah, no, you wrote out good. letters to, what, 100 artists?
2: Yeah, I think we wrote about 200 letters.
1: Yeah, and you wrote them all, Adam, with personal handwriting? Or? Yeah,
2: no, because, you know, when you write a letter normally, I mean, whenever I get asked to do an auction thing, it's always like, uh, you know, there's always a printed letter with a a D and they know they've changed the name <laughs> yeah. for everyone and they don't really bother. <laughs> no. So you give them a, an old drawing from the back of the studio and hope they'll go away. So I thought if I hand wrote every letter... You know, we'd get a really good, good result. And we got, like, 90% of people we asked put in major works. So. And
1: people like Jasper Johns? Yeah,
2: Jasper Johns, amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, really great pieces as well.
1: And so people responded and said, I'll do it. And what did you say in the letter?
2: Uh, you know, just, I just, mean, I mean, the letters were all, you know, like, you know, about a page, page and a half. And I just, you know, said what I liked their work, why I thought it was a good idea. And, you know, what the money goes to benefit. And, you know, I said what I was putting in. To try and you know gee them up and say, can we have something serious and not just something small?
1: Now, some people say that they'll be undervalued. Some people say they may be overvalued. What do you think?
2: I mean, I think. I mean, I think the low estimate's like twenty-five million of of all the works together. I mean, yes. I think you know, if we get if we get twenty million, then it's a great thing. Well, I, I thought think. I
1: saw five million on what you were contributing alone.
2: Yeah, I mean, I put I put a medicine cabinet in, but you know that went for. I mean, one went for a lot of money last year, so you know that's hopefully that'll get a big price. But it just made perfect sense. The first one I made was a big cabinet that had. Uh, enough drugs to last a lifetime but then because we're trying to raise money for drugs I
0: thought it was kind of ironic to do a... And he was generous you know really generous I mean we went to you know we did some meetings at his home in in the south of France at his home in Dublin and he would have these luncheons where it might be people from the band and you know, some red people and then, uh, you know, the carpenter that built his folly in his backyard. He, he gathers people. And the thing that I also was so impressed with is he has friends from like grammar school. He's like you, he has, you know, friends from childhood all the way through to presidents and, you know, moguls and, you know, Bill Gates and whatever. And it's all part, it's all part of life's rich pageant for him. And I, um, I can't say enough good things about him, and he is a student of the. He understands how politics work. He understands, how, you know, this issue. He has real affection for Africa, and and beyond, just even beyond red, and beyond one, and beyond um, AIDS, obviously, and poverty. You know, he thinks about things like. You know what could you do to make sure that um, that uh, broadband can go around Africa or how can we skip br- bricks and mortar if everybody has a phone can they bank can they and he you know brings those things up when he has opportunities with some of these big shots so he's he's really smart and uh, and obviously he can sing like crazy uh, and they were the band was really generous I mean you know they turned red zones um, at all their, at all their tours so that there were areas where the proceeds of those tickets went to the global fund and, you know, they didn't have to do that. And he gave shout outs. and I mean, he, he, uh, he's a really special man. Yeah. There's something
3: about the power of um, music and musicians, um, to shine a light on issues that need it. And, uh, he's gotta be, you know, pretty close to the top of that list. And that's a pretty good list going back to, you know, people like Bob Geldorf. Um, We had Steve Van Zandt on uh, Great Minds, and Steve was one of the founders of Artists United Against Apartheid and is, uh, you know, sort of lost in history. But what he did with the Sun City album, that was, uh, you know, a seminal moment in getting Congress for the first time to override President Reagan's veto of sanctions on South Africa. And that's really what got Nelson Mandela out of prison. Yeah, no,
0: incredible, incredible. No, I think, um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you another little aside. So we were in uh, in ads, um for a meeting and Don McKinnon, who was a colleague of mine, um, and I were sitting on Bono's terrace and Bono was, had, they were recording during that period. And so he, he played a little bit of the music that they were making. So it was, you no, know, no one had heard it. We were just hearing it. And he and I are sitting on a little, bench and their and their terrace and bono is sitting between us and as the music is playing he's bono starts to sort of quietly sing along i mean just you know so like we're sitting next to bono and he's quietly singing along to this music and he gets up and he goes to you know get us a glass of rose or whatever and don and i were like we were like oh my god pinch us like we're sitting here you know with bono who we who is such an icon and so great and generous, but he's singing and he has that great, there are some artists that have that wonderful um, voice that their speaking voice and their singing voice are quite similar, John Lennon had it. Um, and Bono's speaking and singing voice are quite are quite the same and quite unique. And so, I don't know, it was just one of those little moments that were so, uh, you know, there's a thousand of those and they're just really special. So you
2: talk
3: about brands versus government really being in many ways best positioned to lead um, and to respond to crisis that consumers, certainly a huge rise in consciousness about responding to brands that are trying to make other people's lives or local communities better. Where is the leadership going to come from now? You know, what we are seeing in a very real visceral way, uh, whether you're Democrat or Republican, we are seeing what the absence of leadership can do. We
0: sure Uh, are.
3: And we've got, you know, nobody kind of knows what the rules are right now. There's wide variance from county to county, state to state. Uh, This is a big problem. Where is the leadership going to come from?
0: I don't know I'm you know i i I get quite despondent when I think about that because um I don't you know i I don't like to be political um but I think Donald Trump is really not he's not anything he's not he's not a Republican or a Democrat or an independent or a conservative he's a he's a I, you know I'll put it right out there. I think he is a psychopath and I think he has no emotion other than you know his own narcissism and I, I i sort of understand the the idea of why people wanted someone different i mean i understand populism i understand the frustration with washington being a lot of you know insiders that help each other and pat each other on the back and help each other's kids and you know whatever kind of the way the world works um but i think people were fed up with the with after the 08 crisis of the you know washington did fine and the rest of the country really struggled and the big banks did fine and the rest of the country struggled. So they were sending a message, but the messenger is so dangerous. I and I don't say this lightly. I mean, I really think about this is so dangerous um, that I we, we have to do everything we can to motivate everybody to register to vote, to go out and vote and hopefully to defeat him at the polls. And what worries me a little bit is Um that that the democrats have not joe biden i think is a lovely decent man I've no nothing bad to say about him but i'm not sure if you're sending a gladiator into the arena against a A psychopath like a lying psychopath like donald trump that you know, you've sent in your strongest guy, you know, we you know, we need uh, I don't know. We need achilles, you know, we need somebody and so I worry about that, but I'm hoping that the motivation, that people now have seen what what he is like, what he's, you know, he's just incapable of even telling the truth, the the number of crazy things he says, and his attack on the media, the constant attack on the media, who I think holds some culpability because they didn't like him from the get-go and they went after him on day one. And had they, you know, had they just maybe not made it their mission to, uh, you know, Report about him so much, he also lives on the kryptonite of being in our heads all the time if I think if you just stop recovering him for a while, he might just shrink up and die from lack of coverage um like a little raisin but uh yeah i I worry about that, and I also worry that you know I have young young adult children in their in their mid twenties and, you know, this is the president that they've seen as adults, right? I mean, they, obviously they knew other presidents. And as you know, we're related to a couple of them. Um, but the, but they, they're seeing politics in the most heinous light. And what, does that, is that going to inspire a generation of leadership? Is that going to inspire, you know, Ocasio-Cortez's across the board? Or will it make people more cynical? And uh, I worry about that. I do.
3: So you've been, you know, CMO of some pretty big companies, Morgan Stanley, you had a very big gig at Getty, obviously in the agency business. One of my theories, and I'd love your take on it, is, you know, when you had a a, a great young man or woman, someone was bright, you would say about him or her, oh, they could be a senator one day.
0: Yeah.
3: And that was like a real compliment.
0: Oh, Lord, yes. To pay to someone.
3: Now, I almost feel like when you look at people like, you know, the Ted Cruz's, you know, the caliber of the people that are our senators, or even people that have been in office a very long time. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, you know, I think Schumer's heart in the right place. But I wonder aloud, if someone who has been in that role, he's got to be in what, 30, 40 years now at this point? You know, is that just too long for someone to continue to be effective? People, young people today don't want to run for office, established business people in their 30s and 40s don't want to run for office. Is some of that because the nature of digital media and the amount of scrutiny that anyone gets? I mean, I'm not condoning this, but, you know, both Kennedy brothers, you know, were sleeping with Marilyn Monroe and nobody said anything.
0: No, we didn't. Within our business, right? It wasn't our business. In and, way.
3: But now everything is our business. Yep. And have we, in a sense, created an ecosystem where between the power of lobbyists and how important that is, and how influential that is, and the amount of scrutiny that candidates get when someone sticks up their hand and said, hey, I'd like to run. Um, have we almost doomed our democracy in a very you know, odd way?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's funny because the social media was supposed to be the great leveler, right? For every, everything was accessible and everybody could put their point of view out there. But I think you're right. I think, well, it's, it's a number of things. I think the kind of scrutiny that everybody has to go through, forget even if you, let's just say that you are without, you know, blemish, you have brothers and sisters or children that have gotten themselves in trouble or whatever. And so it's not just you; it's your whole extended family that's at risk. That they find, you know, look at Obama. He had a half brother somewhere in Africa that you know the media went out to try to find and say bad things about or whatever. It's crazy. So it's you're not. You have to calculate the risk to yourself, the risk to others in your family, and the the fact that it's unrelenting. It's unrelenting, and the trolls out there. Whether they're real people or whether they're bots, right? I mean, you you may have AI trolling you now, Russian bots or whatever bots trolling you. So it's 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 got to be really off putting, and 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 so I don't know I don't know how you get the, you know, the people that believe there was there was a time I think when people believed, especially if you'd had a successful career, that that was the next thing you did was you ran for office and gave back, right? You became a senator or a congressman or a mayor or whatever because you had taken care of your family and now you could use your skills to do good things and I don't see that now and um, yet I do think that I do think that the there's a lot of you know I again going back to the coronavirus crisis you see so much good in this country there's so much I say all the time to my son and daughter you know Donald Trump doesn't deserve us it's not that we don't we don't deserve him but he doesn't deserve us this is such a good country full of a lot of good people and i think a lot of the politicians that we have in office now don't deserve us and uh but to go back to your point i think the the thing about any staying anywhere for a really long time and i think you're like this too i'm a restless soul and so i think my value to any place has always been that i was new and I had a new, perspite, like I looked at it with fresh eyes. And had I stayed at some place for 30 years, I probably would have just, you know, played my greatest hits over and over until I bored people to death.
3: But I think what, you know, what I always sort of anchor myself in is, you know, the, the power of charismatic leadership. And I think in our business, you know, it is an incredibly generous business. And I definitely yeah. drank some of the Kool-Aid here. But, you know, I love... That we're able to leverage, you know, this Advertising Week platform that we've created to focus attention on issues like mental health, like the opioid yeah. crisis, and diversity, you know.
0: and you know, all sorts of things that you've done to the fore, which well, is really good. because
3: that's the stuff that's really important. I mean, yes, do yeah. we want to talk about all the technology innovations and some of the people we've had on stage? We put Nikki Six. Thanks to our friends at I uh, was uh, Alex Cameron at iHeart and we had Nikki Six from Motley Crue on stage with the Surgeon General of the United States Jerome Adams you know talking about the opioid crisis right. with a mom who leads one of the big foundations that's fighting it who lost her son and her husband i read was the I think the vice admiral of the navy you know wow. and once again you see that that notion that no one is immune that no one you know, escape exactly, real exactly. world problems. So, uh, but I, I think, you know, somehow we always get through things
0: and That's I'm an optimist. Yeah. I'm, an, I'm very much an optimist. I think this is a dark time, but I, I, I again, I say this to our, our son and daughter, you know, don't, don't add up subtotals here. This is a weird, this is a weird moment, but I don't think it's, it's not forever between the disease and trump we'll get through it because i do i believe in i believe in good people and uh and i've seen it firsthand i mean i you know as you point out we we come from generous industries and i i feel really lucky that i've met and worked with and worked for some amazing people that have been very generous to lots of people in lots of ways
3: great great all right you stay safe and i'll talk to you soon
0: yep that's good bye
1: Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.